I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we examine the characters of scripture and then look to the larger archetypes of their character to determine what we can discover. This week we continue in the book of Exodus, and if we were doing the one-year cycle, then this text would then finish off the very first of the Parshas of Exodus. And the first week we were given an introductory narrative that set the stage for the rest of Exodus. We read of how the circumstances of Israel had changed from the end of Genesis. We learned of the progressively harsher treatment that Israel received from Pharaoh. We then read the opening story of the man Moses, whom God had chosen to be his tool for freeing Israel from slavery. Last week, Moses had the opportunity to enter into a relationship with God as God appeared to him in the form of a flame that did not consume a bush. As we examine the particulars of that event and the conversation that was held at the bush, we discovered that the revelation of God's name to Moses was way more than simply God making known his identifying word. This entire event was centered around the concepts that God sees, hears, and knows the oppressions and hardships of his people. And more importantly, that God remembers his covenant with his people and will act in accordance to that covenant. Now, God not only declares this at least four times in various ways at the end of chapter 3 and all the way through chapter 4, but then God gives Moses signs that reveal this truth in a tangible way. Now, this book, the book of Exodus in the English, the book of names as it's known in the Hebrew, it reveals to us the name of God in all of its wonder and glory and confusion. You see, the nature and names of God can lead us to confusion and to wonder, to places where we're simply asking, what the heck just happened? What is God doing? I can't see. I don't understand. I don't know what God is doing. You see, God's nature is not our nature. And some of the things that he does can seem weird to our sensibilities. And we're going to encounter that today in several different ways. God doing things that leaves us dumbfounded. But if we examine these instances in light of what they reveal, we may actually find that when we get to these instances, we are being taught something of great importance about the nature of God. So why is it in these instances of weirdness that we're being taught the things of most importance? Because it's at these times that we're being given very drastic examples of how it is that God is different than we are, how his ways are different than our ways. And this can reveal to us something that's just as important as the nature of God. Because as we learn the nature of God and as we recognize who he is and what he values, we will discover the ways in which we are nothing like him. We will discover our own failures, and most importantly, 
we will discover just how far from the goal of the image of God we are. Because in the weirdness that we're going to encounter this week, we will be introduced to something that God hates. And that is hypocrisy. If we examine the teachings of Yeshua in detail, we will find that this is perhaps his greatest pet peeve. Those who teach or expect others to live in a certain way, but then who themselves do not act in that way that matches their words or expectations of others, can expect to find themselves at odds with God. And that is something that makes us feel horrible, to have hypocrisy revealed in our own lives. The fact is, it's way too easy to spot hypocritical failures in others. It is an act of God himself to spot these same failures in our own lives. We often feel justified going to others and poking a finger into the hypocrisy in their lives and demanding that they get better. But when people do the same thing to us, our initial response is, Who are you to judge? And this is something that Moses faced back in chapter 2. Remember, he killed a man in a fight. Then he confronts someone else in a fight, and their response? Who are you to judge me? You're no better. You were in a fight yesterday, and you killed someone. Well, this week, we will see an even deeper level of hypocrisy in Moses. And once again, it's not Moses that recognizes his own hypocrisy in the moment, but rather someone else. And finally, This Parsha contains a revelation of God that can make us uncomfortable in yet another way. When we think of the concept of the chosen vessel, what are our initial thoughts? we, We think of men like Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Hezekiah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Yeshua, Paul, and more. Vessels chosen for honor and for the purpose of declaring the name of God to the world. But how many of us, when we think of chosen vessels, think of the great villains of the world? Pharaoh, Saul, Nebuchadnezzar, Haman, Judas, Caesar, Pilate, or Hitler. One of the facts of life that we need to wrestle with as people of God is that God chooses vessels not just for honor, but he chooses vessels for destruction as well. Toward what end? For what purpose? Well, we will discover that today, if you don't already know. So with all these thoughts in mind, let's read this Parsha and consider these ideas further. Exodus 4.18-6.1 through 6, 1. Then Moshe went and returned to Yeter, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brothers who are in Mitzrayim to see whether they are still alive. And Yitro said to Moshe, Go in peace. And Hashem said to Moshe in Midian, Go. Return to Mitzrayim, for all the men are dead who sought your life. So Moshe took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey. And he returned to the land of Mitzrayim, and Moshe took the rod of Elohim in his hand. And Hashem said to Moshe, As you go back to Mitzrayim, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I am going to strengthen his heart, so that he does not let the people go. And you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus said Hashem, Yisrael is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go to serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, see, I am killing your son, your firstborn. And it came to be on the way in the lodging place that Hashem met him and sought to kill him. And Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and threw it at Moshe's feet and said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him go. Then she said, You are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. 
And Hashem said to Aaron, Go, meet Moshe in the wilderness. And he went and met him on the mountain of Elohim and kissed him. Moshe then told Aaron all the words of Hashem, who had sent him, and all the signs which he had commanded him. And Moshe went with Aaron and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which Hashem had spoken to Moshe. Then he did the signs before the eyes of the people. And the people believed. And they heard that Hashem had visited the children of Israel, and that he had looked on their affliction. And they bowed their heads and did obeisance. And afterwards Moshe and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, Thus said Hashem, Elohim of Israel, Let my people go, so that they celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is Hashem, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Hashem, nor am I going to let Israel go. And they said, The Elohim of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, and sacrifice to Hashem our Elohim, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the sovereign of Mitzrayim said to them, Moshe and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, See, the people of the land are many now, and you make them cease from their burdens. And the same day Pharaoh commanded the slave drivers of the people and their foremen, saying, You are no longer to give the people straw to make bricks as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, and lay on them the required amount of bricks which they had made before. Do not diminish it, for they are idle. That is why they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our Elohim. Let more work be laid on the men, so that they labor in it, and not pay attention to words of falsehood. And the slave drivers of the people and their foremen went out to, went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus said Pharaoh, I do not give you straw. Go, take straw for yourselves, wherever you may find it, for your work shall not be diminished. And the people were scattered in all the land of Mitzrayim to gather stubble for straw. And the slave drivers were hurrying them on, saying, Fulfill your actions, your daily matters, as when there was straw. Also the foremen of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's slave drivers had set over them, were struck and were asked, Why have you not fulfilled your law in making bricks both yesterday and today as before? And the foremen of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants this way? There is no straw given to your servants. And they say to us, Make bricks. And see, your servants are struck, but your own people are at fault. But he said to them, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to Hashem. So now go, work, and straw is not given to you, but deliver the amount of bricks. And the foremen of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, You are not to diminish your daily amount of bricks. And when they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moshe and Aaron, who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, Let Hashem look on you and judge, because you have made us loathsome in the eyes of Pharaoh, and in the eyes of his servants, to give a sword in their hand to kill us. And Moshe returned to Hashem and said, Hashem, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you send me? For ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. And Hashem said to Moses, Now see what I do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he is going to let them go. And with a strong hand, he is going to drive them out of his land. So at the end of the last Parsha, Moses was given his marching orders. God said to him, I am going to free my people, and you are the vessel that I have chosen to accomplish this task. Now, Moses fights this, though. He doesn't want the responsibility. He doesn't want to take up the mantle that's being placed on his shoulders. And frankly, I don't blame him. This is a huge responsibility. But after some cajoling and then some outright anger from God and some giving him assistance through other human means, 
Moses finally relents and agrees to step into this role. I mean, it's not as if he had a choice, right? And so Moses takes up his staff and he returns to his home in Midian. Moses gets home and goes to his father-in-law, the, the man with the title, or is it the name, of Jethro, Yitro, a priest of Midian, the head of the household that Moses now lives in, and Moses asks for permission to return to his people. His excuse for leaving? Oh, I just want to see if my brothers still live. And Jethro gives his blessing to this trip. And then some indeterminate time later, Moses is approached by God once again. He's told that it is time to move, time to return to Egypt. So Moses packs up his wife and his sons, and he heads off to Egypt. Along the way, or before he left, we're not told, Moses is given another command from God. And the essence of this command? Make sure that you do everything that I tell you. But I'm going to warn you now. I'm going to work in Pharaoh so that he's not going to let you go right away. And this is going to escalate to the point where you will tell Pharaoh God is commanding you to let Israel go. And if you don't obey, well, Israel is my firstborn. And if he doesn't let Israel go, I will kill his firstborn. Simple enough. But then Moses leaves to go fulfill this command of God. But there's a problem. All of a sudden, on the way to Egypt to do what it is that God has asked him to do, God suddenly seeks to kill someone. The text is not clear who it is that God is seeking to kill. We're not sure. It could be Moses or it could be Gershom. I believe it to be Gershom, but that, that was under threat of death at this point. Why? We'll read the command that just preceded this from God. What is it that Moses is to tell Pharaoh? If you do not do what God says, he's going to kill your firstborn. But we find out in these verses that there is an area in Moses' own life where he is in disobedience to God. And we can infer from the story that this is something that Moses knew that he was supposed to do, and yet he had not done it. How can we infer this? Well, Zipporah, his wife, knew. She's the one who acts on Moses' behalf. So, if Zipporah, this wife from the nation of Midian, knew what Moses was supposed to do, and she knew why it was that God was seeking to kill Gershom in the first place, chances are that Moses knew what he was supposed to do. I just find that inescapable. Moses knew what God was asking of him, and Moses' own hard heart prevented him from carrying out the task that God had set before him. Moses was, in this moment, living in hypocrisy. It was his job to go to Pharaoh and to tell him what God wanted from him. It was Moses' job to tell Pharaoh that if he did not do this thing that God had commanded, then God was going to kill his firstborn son. And then Moses starts out to accomplish this task without himself doing what God had commanded to do. And the result? God seeks to kill his firstborn son. Now, how can Moses go and proclaim judgment as a result of disobedience to this man who is a leader of another nation, who had so many people who depended on him, when Moses himself was not willing to carry out even this one little command of God in his own life with the one who is dependent on him? Now, Paul speaks of circumstances like this in the book of Romans. In Romans 2, 17-25, he says, See, you are called a Jew 
and rest on the Torah, and make a boast in God, and know the desire of God, and you approve what is superior, being instructed out of the Torah, and are trusting that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of foolish ones, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and of truth in the Torah. You then who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who proclaim that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abominate idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the Torah through the transgression of the Torah, do you disrespect God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the nations because of you, as it has been written, for circumcision indeed profits if you practice the Torah. But if you are a transgressor of the Torah, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Here in Romans, Paul seems to be speaking into this situation. Moses is being sent to the nations to preach to Pharaoh repentance and the coming of the kingdom of God, and yet he has not joined his own family to that same kingdom of God. Why? Uh, we're not told. We can only infer. He knew what God wanted from him, and he did not live up to it. If we look to the book of James and we take a step back and examine the book as a whole, we'll find that the entire book is a discussion on hypocrisy, on acting in accordance with your words, doing what you say. And so it is in this section that Moses is facing here in Exodus what is declared in James 3. James 3 verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we shall receive greater judgment. James then goes on to speak of bridling the tongue and conforming word to action. According to James, this is the most difficult thing that a man can do. I mean, even Moses had difficulty here in matching his actions to the words that he was being prepared to speak. To the point where Moses was about to be put in the position to threaten Pharaoh's own firstborn. And so God had to react in kind to Moses. His own future warning being lived out in his life now. And in this, the nature of God is revealed to us. God's nature is revealed in the fact that humans are hypocrites. Even his chosen vessels have blind spots. It's nearly impossible for one of us to see ourselves so clearly that we're able to conform in every way our actions to our words. But God's nature? God keeps his word. Balaam declares this in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man to lie, nor a son of man to repent. He has said, and would he not do it, or spoken, and would not confirm it? God is not a hypocrite. It is not in his nature to speak a thing and to not do it. In fact, the things that God speaks become physics. And this particular episode reveals for us the truth that God is just. He will give people according to their own actions. If he has determined that there is a prescribed response to a particular action, he will hold those who carry the message responsible in their own lives if they fail to live up to the standard that he has set. Now, this should make us all super uncomfortable because we've all been given a task to teach others the gospel, to take this message of repentance and forgiveness what must we engage in in our own lives? We must live lives of repentance and forgiveness. In order to bear the message without hypocrisy, we must engage in these things in our own lives. 
And as we are given more to speak, we must align and conform ourselves to the message that he has given us. Now, as I said before, hypocrisy is one of the most difficult things for us to spot in our own lives. But I think that I have found at least one simple way to discover these blind spots. Ask yourself, what bothers you the most about others? That thing that you just can't stand, or the way that you have pinpointed in which this other person is failing. Now, once you have that, stop thinking about the other person and turn inward and ask yourself, is there any way that you're doing the same thing in your own life? I've found in my own experience that this is a surefire way to discover hypocrisy in your own life. But in order for this to work, we have to slow down and not be too quick to judge others in their failures. And when the problem is discovered, there's a prescription to overcoming this issue. Repentance. Turning away from the failure. Doing the thing that you must do or ceasing the thing that you must cease. In the case of Moses, it meant circumcising his son, an action that Zipporah did on his behalf. And I believe that this is what Zipporah meant with her statement. This was your job. She touched or threw or lay the foreskin at his feet. You are a husband of blood to me. Now, I'm sure that this is some form of idiom. What the line means, I don't know. But the intention behind it seems to be one of frustration at having to do the job of another. To do the thing for someone that they know they should do themselves, but they won't. Now, this part of scripture, it is weird to us. And that is why I believe that it is important to sit in the tension and consider what is being said from every angle. And so it is at this that Aaron meets Moses. And Moses teaches Aaron what's about to happen. They make it to Egypt and they convince the elders that they have been sent by God. And so it is that chapter 5 opens. Moses goes before Pharaoh for the very first time and he speaks the message that he was told to tell Pharaoh back in chapter 3. Let my people go to celebrate a festival to our God. We'll be back in a week. No need to worry. And what is Pharaoh's response? Who is Hashem? I don't know Hashem. You take the people from their work, though. You're preventing them from serving me. Now, what is Pharaoh saying here, in essence, that he's ignorant of Hashem? I don't believe that this is what it means, but rather, I think Pharaoh is saying, I am your God. You need to be more concerned about what I tell you to do than your concern over what it is that this random God that you've picked up has told you to do. You're afraid of pestilence and a sword from your God? I'll show you pestilence and sword. Obey me. And Pharaoh then commands that Israel not only continue to meet their quotas that they have been set, but that they also gather all of the straw that was needed to make the bricks themselves. Now, as I said before, Moses is not the only chosen vessel in this Parsha, or even in this book. Pharaoh himself is a chosen vessel. He has a God-ordained purpose to carry out. And that purpose? To participate in the revelation of God that's being prepared for the nations. Romans 9, 17-24 speaks on it this way. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this same purpose I have raised you up to show my power in you, and that my name be declared in all the earth. So then, he who favors whom he wishes, and he hardens whom he wishes, then he shall say to me, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his counsel? 
But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall that which is formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have authority over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for value and another not for value? And if God, desiring to show wrath and to make his power known with much patience, tolerated the vessel of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his honor on vessels of compassion, which he had prepared beforehand for honor, even whom he called, not only us of the Jews, but also of the nations. Here it is that Pharaoh is a vessel that was chosen by God as a tool. His purpose? To be a vessel destined to destruction. To be the one that would provide the conflict that was necessary for God's name to be revealed. And we see this occur all through scripture. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the one who destroyed Judah, the one who led people into captivity. Jeremiah 43.10 says, Then you shall say to them, Thus says Hashem of hosts, the God of Israel, See, I am sending, and I shall bring Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I shall set his throne above these stones that I have hidden, and he shall spread his canopy over them. The chosen vessel of God, used to reveal God's name. Specifically, used to demonstrate his justice and to punish his own people for their hypocrisy. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is not the only one chosen by God for this purpose. Cyrus, Saul, even Judas, all chosen by God for a purpose, to act as an agent of the adversary to provide the conflict that will result in the revelation of God's name. You see, what happens next is not unforeseen by God, and yet it looks from the ground as if God had abandoned his people. After a few days of being scattered through the land, after a few days of the hardship and oppression from Pharaoh being increased, the elders of Israel, they go to Pharaoh to plead their case. Why would you treat us this way? You tell us to make bricks, but you don't give us straw. And when we're not able to fulfill the quotas, we're beaten. But we're not at fault. It's your own men who are at fault. And by implication, it's you who are at fault. And Pharaoh responds once again, You are idle. If you were working, you wouldn't even have time to come up with these stories of a random God. You would not have the time to worry about a festival. You should occupy yourselves with serving me and not with this weak and powerless God that's allowed you to be enslaved. If you have time for a festival in the wilderness, well, then you must have time to gather your own straw. And with that, the elders are sent out of Pharaoh's house. Now, as they're leaving, they run into Moses and Aaron, and they turn and they accuse Moses and Aaron of this turn of events. The elders say, you have made us loathsome to Pharaoh. You have given him the sword to kill us with. Moses had spoken previously to Pharaoh about the possibility of the sword descending on Israel as a result of disobedience to God. But now the elders of Israel are complaining to Moses about the sword that is descending on Israel due to their attempt at obedience. Not a sword from God, but a sword from the adversary of God. Now, regardless of what it is that Israel does in this situation, it seems as though they get a sword. Hardship is the result of either obedience or disobedience. This is a difficult word for us because we all want ease, we all want comfort, and we all want everything to be good. And yet, there is in this moment in Exodus 
a no-win scenario. Offend the man who thinks he's God, or actually offend God. Both are going to result in hardship. One hardship is going to be permanent. The other hardship will be temporary. Now, God has in this scenario chosen the opposing vessels, Moses and Pharaoh, to create conflict, to create a space for the purpose of increased oppression for his people. God is doing this, and he knew that this would happen. He knew that Pharaoh would lash out and make things worse. But the people are more concerned with the immediate. Now, there is a phenomenon that's well documented in psychological material that's known as Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome is a condition which causes hostages to develop a psychological alliance with their captors during captivity. Now, this will cause hostages to seek to prevent the authorities from acting on their behalf. The hostage will seek the good and advancement of their captor and form a strong bond with their captor. Now, Stockholm Syndrome is a paradox in that the victim of the captors, the hostages, will view their captor with the opposite of the fear and disdain which an onlooker from the outside might view that same captor. Rather, they'll view their oppressor as the one to support, and anyone that seeks to help them to escape becomes the enemy. And we look in on the situation from the outside, and we can easily point out the sheer ludicrousness of this accusation by the elders of Israel. Pharaoh already had a sword. Pharaoh already was destroying the people of Israel. But because he was doing it slowly and to others in small ways, they didn't care. He provided stability. He provided resources. He provided some measure of creature comforts that they felt they needed. It wasn't until his anger turned towards them as individuals that they have an issue. And the issue isn't with their captor. It's with the person who's working to free them from this situation. The fact of the matter is that too many of us suffer from a form of spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. Because we are born slaves to sin. We are captives to an evil overlord whose desire is our destruction. But because he gives us creature comforts, he gives us full bellies, he gives us big houses, he gives us nice cars, he gives us fleshly pleasures. When the time comes for us to be released from this captivity, we rebel. We will fight to retain our chains because the change hurts too much. The change is scary. It's unknown. It is better in our eyes to continue to suffer day after day in slow torment that we know than to submit ourselves to an immensely painful process of change into something completely unknown. Even if we know that the time of increased pain will in the end lead to our own freedom and cessation of the torment that we have experienced daily, this is a human condition, and it is one that we will see repeated on at least three occasions in this first generation that escapes from Egypt. At the time of trouble, at a time of difficulty, the Stockholm Syndrome will kick in and they will desire to return to Egypt because of the easy life or comforts that were available in Egypt. And the fact is that we all act this way from time to time. It's easy to simply allow an easy life or a creature comfort to distract us from the painful work of actually digging deep in our own hearts to discover the darkness there and deal with it. Don't let this time pass you by. 
Don't allow the distractions that are bound to come keep you from this work. Don't allow the fear of the unknown to keep you from making a decision that you know you need to make. When you make the first step towards a significant change, it's going to hurt. It's going to become more difficult. You may find yourself at this time speaking the words that Moses speaks here. Why, oh God, why have you done evil to me? Ever since I've begun this process of conforming to your will, since I have started doing the difficult things that I don't want to do, all that I have experienced is evil. You have not delivered me at all. Why did you even ask me to begin this process? And it's this verse that gives us another insight into the issues of good versus evil. Moses goes before God and he complains of the evil that has been done. He complains that God is not holding up his end of the bargain. He says, I have done my part. Where are you in this? And in this moment, Moses questions the nature and the character of God. We read all through scripture that God is just. God is not a hypocrite. God will do the things he says he will do. And Moses, here in this moment of being confronted with the reality of increased difficulty for a time, questions the nature of God. In a small way, he allows the voice of the serpent to have a purchase in his head. God is letting you down. God didn't really mean what he said. God is not going to save you. In fact, now everything is worse now that you've obeyed God. You see, there's a third nature that's being revealed in this book. There's the name and the nature of God. Then there's the nature of man. But hidden here in the first part of this book, there's also the nature of the adversary. Because the adversary will do whatever it takes to keep you enslaved. He will cause pain and heartache. He will enslave you and then give you just enough to keep you where you are. He will appeal to your human nature. He will try to get you to love and enjoy your enslavement. He will take all that you have and give you nothing in return. And you will love it. Because the alternative is unknown. The alternative is painful. You will fight and scramble and blame and accuse and do whatever it takes to stay right where you are. And you will hate it the entire time. And the tendency is to then blame God for keeping you there. But the moment he moves you and the pain increases, you will then blame him again for causing increased pain, for moving you into that first step that's so difficult, but that leads to your freedom. I guess what I'm trying to say is that we, as people, we need to recognize this in ourselves when God begins to move us into a new place in life. We need to recognize the tactics of the enemy as this process begins. When God takes us on the first step, our initial reaction is going to be one of bafflement and anger. The enemy will increase his attacks and will try to hurt us even more. He will do whatever it takes to cause us to turn back and lock the shackles back on our own feet because it's the slavery that we're comfortable with. It'll hurt. It'll be very easy to slip into blame. I've obeyed God, but you haven't held up your end. Are you even out there? Can I even trust you? 
Are you really seeking my good? Because all that I'm seeing right now is evil and you haven't delivered me at all. And it's to this that God will respond. When you take that first step, when the pain and the pressure increases, when the change becomes painful and you cry out to him, he will say, Exodus 6.1, And Hashem said to Moses, Now see what I do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he is going to let them go. And with a strong hand he's going to drive them out of his land. The promise is not that I'm going to deliver you, says the Lord. The promise given here is that I'm going to make things so difficult on your enemies that they will cast you out. I will make things so difficult on your captors that they're going to drive you out. I will deliver you, but when I do, the enemy isn't going to even want you. Because God is not a man that he would speak something and not carry through on what he has said. So what have we learned about God so far in this book that reveals his name? He sees, he hears, he knows, and he remembers. He is a God of covenant and promise. He has a unique identifier that separates him from other gods. He hates hypocrisy. He is trustworthy and faithful in his promises. He chooses men to accomplish his purposes. Sometimes his purposes are not what we desire for them to be. Often doing his will is painful and difficult because it's contrary to our nature. But ultimately, he will have his say. So the question then comes, are you willing to face this? Are you willing to be oppressed and harmed by the world in order to avoid being judged by him? Are you willing to go initiate a painful transformation in order to accomplish his will in your life? Even if his will leads to pain, even if his will leads to poverty, even if his will leads to death? I suppose the follow-up question is this. Do you trust him? Do you trust that his will is the best for the world, the best for the kingdom, the best for mankind, even the best for you, even if you've never experienced that in this life? So you see, the elders of Israel, they didn't really trust God. They didn't really know God. At the end of this Parsha, Moses too is having difficulty in trusting God as well. And each of us, in our own ways, we question God daily and we demonstrate that we don't really believe what he says. But of everyone in existence, he's the only one who's trustworthy. And we have to know this to be true. Because the process of Deresh Chai, the process of seeking life, it is the difficult process. And we have to know He is on our side. And He will give us life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Chai, as we Seek Life. Shalom.